Today's Bible reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 14. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I find favour in your eyes, my lord, my king. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gerah, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops in the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and bud, is trying to kill me. How much more, then, this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And maybe that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Thanks, Kaya. Thanks, Gab. Kaya, impeccable pronunciation. Uh, you must have practiced some of those names, surely. Um, fantastic. That's awesome. Uh, friends, lovely to be here with you again this morning. Uh, it's, uh, I was preaching at Harrington Park, same sermon last week. It's always sad when I don't get to enjoy fellowship with you guys for a week. Um, but here we are. Uh, we are continuing David's escape uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, and here we go. And so that's what I've called it. You've got an outline on the back of your uh, handout if you'd like to use it. Uh, it's all the different people that we'll uh, think about David interacting with today. Now, grand betrayals like the one we're in the middle of, Absalom's betrayal of David, well, they can't help but make you think of those kind of movie moments of betrayal. Do you know who this is? Huh? Well, it's not. Well, Yes. Who's, who's, betraying, who's betraying them all? It's Cypher. Cypher in the Matrix betrays them all, pulls out their thingamajiggies when they're in the Matrix. Uh, what about this one? Come on, all the parents out there. Or, or, or the young'uns. Who's this? It's, it's Ernesto. Come on, guys. It's from Coco. His betrayal of his friend Hector. I thought this would be popular, popular things. Am I too old now with Coco? What about this one? Who's this guy? Yeah, yeah. This guy thought he was Prince Charming. Not so charming. Uh, another betrayal. And of course, uh, the classic or 
depending on how you feel about these movies, they're not so classic. Um, who's this? Yeah, there we go. Anakin Skywalker. At least a few of us have watched Star Wars. The classic betrayal, Anakin Skywalker betrays not only Obi-Wan, but the whole force uh, turns to the dark side, becomes uh, Darth Vader. Sorry if I gave it away uh, by now. Uh, I hope you, you've got him on board. Um, and as Anakin is lying, uh, sadly, limbs cut off, burning up from lava, what we, what we expect to be his last words, except we've all seen the other movies, so we know they're not, what are they? What are his last words? Yeah, I hate you. His last words to Obi-Wan are, I hate you. And Obi-Wan's last words are, in return, you were my brother, Anakin. I loved you. You can imagine uh, Absalom's betrayal of King... Whoa, what happened? I have come to great power and authority. I'm not sure if I should step back a little bit. This is going to end up a very long sermon if this continues. Um, You can imagine David and Absalom. Absalom, I hate you. I want to take your place. I want to kill you. And David saying, you are my son, Absalom. I loved you. But unlike all these movie moments, Absalom's betrayal of his father, well, it happened in history. This is a real betrayal. This is a real son and a real father and a real king recorded for us in the scriptures. And sadly, it's not unique, is it? Strangely, the killing of a king by his son to take his place on the throne seems to be commonplace in monarchies. I'm not really sure why when if you just waited long enough, you'd end up in the same place, but it seems to be a thing. But one notable difference here with David is that David has a special place as God's anointed king over his people, a place that other kings don't necessarily have. And so as David escapes Absalom's inevitable oncoming siege of Jerusalem and he runs off um, for safety, Um, he meets a few people, and we saw last week he met Ittai, uh, who was a foreign... Oh, that's a little bit small. Sorry about that. Maybe that's not that helpful. But Ittai, uh, he was a Gittite. Uh, He was a foreigner who'd arrived only yesterday, and yet we saw him swear undying or or even to death loyalty to David. Uh, There was a show of military support for David. And then we saw priests, Zadok and Abiathar, And all the Levites, they arrive with the Ark of God, the presence of God for the Jews. And so we saw a show of religious affirmation for David. And so David sent them back to Jerusalem as spies. And then he met Hushai. Everyone keeps coming with support for David. He was an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was described as a friend of David. Hushai, probably an older man, might have had great wisdom, but poor mobility, so he was going to slow David up, but David instead sends him back as a double agent to pose as an advisor to Absalom, and so David has political support. But now, in our passage today, David starts to encounter people who raise some questions about David's ubiquitous support. Today we meet Ziba, firstly, and you'll see that on your outline, who is uh, the steward of Saul's household, the previous king. We meet Shimi, and I'm going to call him Shimi, uh, even though 
Uh, it might look like it's it's written Shimei. I'm going to call him Shimmy because I think uh, a bit easier to pronounce, but I'm not going to do that every time I say it. Um, he was a man from Saul's clan, uh, and then we um, and then we we'll see that David interacts with the sons of Zeruiah, uh, who are actually his nephews. Zeruiah was his sister. Now these encounters today are going to cause challenge us to consider responses that people have to God's anointed king. And we'll also think about the attitude of David in these encounters, as well as God's sovereign purposes over the whole thing. So first, let's look at Ziba. Ziba, a steward of God's household. Now, Ziba turns up just at the right time with large amounts of provisions for David. Let's have a look in our passage at 16, verse 1 to 4. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. Now, throughout this, uh, this talk, I'm going to give you an opportunity to have a quick chat with the person next to you of just 30 seconds. As we meet these people, what do you think of them? So this is the first one. We're going to ask, what do you think of Ziba? Do you think he's legit? And what do you think of David's decision? I'll give you 30 seconds. Have a quick chat with the person next to you. Go. Right, that's it. 30 seconds. It's a short time. What did you think of Zeba? What's your opinion? Legit? Not so legit. So David's just reached the summit of the Mount of Olives, and he comes over the other side, and he encounters Zeba, this steward of Mephibosheth, who was Saul's grandson, the son of Jonathan. We first meet Zeba back in 2 Samuel 9, and we, learn, uh, we learned earlier as well that David had sworn an oath of friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and also with their descendants. They swore an oath together. And so in 2 Samuel 9, David's become king, and so he asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Because he'd sworn this oath. And so Ziba, this servant, is brought forward and tells David about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Say that five times quickly. Mephibosheth. I reckon Kaya could do it. He's described, though, as being lame in both feet. Sadly, in escaping, uh, I think, um, 
uh, he was, he, the Bible tells us that he was dropped by a midwife when he was an infant, and so he's um, become disabled in both feet. And so, for the sake of his father Jonathan, David restores to Mephibosheth all that belonged to his grandfather Saul. And he says to Mephibosheth that he will always eat at the king's table, at David's table. This is a huge privilege for a man who was both the descendant of the overthrown king, the somewhat rival king Saul, and someone who in that time has a disability. Back then, no equal opportunity, no NDIS, nothing like that. And Mephibosheth even identifies himself in derogatory terms in that passage. He calls himself a dead dog. It's really full on. But Mephibosheth gets this amazing privilege of eating at the king's table like one of his sons. And so David then also appoints Ziba to steward Saul's estate for Mephibosheth, to look after all the bits and pieces, the fields, the servants, all that kind of stuff. And so Ziba turns up at this moment where all these others have turned up to help David. Ziba turns up bearing gifts. Now here, Ziba is an unlikely provider, isn't he? He's from the house of Saul. But he arrives with just what David needs at this moment. God's hand, we can see moving in these events, even as human beings are making decisions. But David asks, why have you brought these? And it possibly does reflect a little bit of suspicion on his part. Now, Ziba has the dexterity of a modern politician. He's uh, doing a radio interview. And Ziba manages to avoid the issue and state the obvious. He tells David that the food is for you to eat, the wine is to drink, and the donkeys are to ride on. Yep, thank you, Ziba. That much was obvious. It's, it's kind of like asking someone, oh, what brought you along to church this morning? A car. Yep, okay, true. But we're not really getting anywhere, are we? David really wants to know, are these coming from Mephibosheth? What are the implications for David and his support? What's going on here? Is something dodgy going on? And so he asks where Mephibosheth is. And Ziba claims that despite his apparent loyalty to to David, that Mephibosheth has abandoned David and is seeking to reclaim the kingship of the family of Saul. So David's immediate response is to hand over all of Mephibosheth's property to Ziba. Without hearing any further evidence, what do you reckon? Maybe this gives us a little indication about what Absalom was talking about when he was talking about the failings in the justice department that he was uh, talking about when he laid his foundation for his coup. Clearly, David's only heard one side of the story. But David's trust in the loyalty of Saul's descendants may not be very strong. It does seem a bit ridiculous, though, that David listened to Ziba. Mephibosheth himself, he ate at David's table like one of his sons. Oh, hang on a minute. Being like one of David's sons isn't actually a great thing at this moment, is it? Hmm. So maybe a charge like this seems plausible to a man like David who's in grief over his sons, but it's not probable. Really, by no stretch of the imagination could Mephibosheth have thought that Absalom's rebellion would result in him becoming king, would he? 
And certainly at that time in history, a man with significant disability, he could not have been a serious possibility for the throne. And the rebellion hadn't even come from the tribe of Benjamin, from Saul's household. It had come from David's own son, who was hardly likely to put Saul's descendant on the throne after all that effort. David sadly demonstrates the capacity that most of us seem to have to believe the worst in others immediately. And perhaps he can be somewhat excused because of the stress of the moment, but it shows us that David's weaknesses had not been left behind in Jerusalem in the midst of this crisis. David still finds it difficult to resist pressure from those close by, and he accepts the material aid from Ziba, and he makes a hasty legal decision. It catches up with him later in chapter 19. When David returns to, to Jerusalem, Mephibosheth comes to him, and it seems like Mephibosheth has been in mourning from the day that David left, and he reveals that Ziba was lying here. Ziba had betrayed him and swindled him out of all of his possessions. Sadly, this is betrayal in the midst of betrayal. Ziba is a scoundrel who has used the betrayal of David's son Absalom to enact his own betrayal of his own master for his own gain. It's very sad. But Ziba and Mephibosheth have also brought to mind David's complex relationship, an ongoing complex relationship with King Saul and his household and relatives. And so the next character we see who crosses David's path continues in this thread of the narrative. We meet Shimei, who was a Benjamite of the clan of Saul, a man related closely to Saul. Let's have a look in our passage now from verse 5 to 8. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, even though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom, and you have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Well, what do you think of Shimei? Is he right? Are any of his claims against David right? Have a 30-second chat with the person next to you. See what you reckon. All right, that's your 30 seconds. It's not very long. What did you think? Are you like, yep, Shimmy, you're right? Or is he way off target? This Shimmy guy, the son of Gera, well, it, it seems he's a prominent man in the clan of the house of Saul. We see him turn up as well in chapter 19 a bit later, and he's accompanied by a thousand Benjamites. So seems like he's a dude. 
And Shimi says in verse 8 about all the blood you shed in the household of Saul. Now, Shimi's probably blaming David for a few things. The deaths of Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army. That's in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. The death of Ishbosheth, who was a son of Saul in chapter 4. He's possibly blaming David for deaths of Saul's sons and grandsons in an episode that's rec- sorry, an episode that's recorded later in 2 Samuel in two, chapter 21, but is actually an epilogue to the book, so it may have occurred earlier. So he might be blaming David for that if it had happened by then. And he might be blaming David for the death of Saul himself. But the thing is, the writer of Samuel, both books, is at pains to show throughout the books that David is not guilty of these deaths. See, David actually curses Joab and Abishai for the killing of Abner. He curses them. And David executed Rechab and Bana for killing Ishbosheth. The responsibility for the Gideonite vengeance, that's in chapter 21, that's the episode where we're not sure where it occurs. Well, the responsibility is actually laid squarely on Saul for breaking an oath that the Israelites had with the Gideonites. And David has multiple times refused to lay even a hand on Saul, the Lord's anointed. And he mourns Saul's death when he dies. So clearly, Shimi's claims are not accurate with regard to the household of Saul. He's way off. But there are some truths in what he says that must have hit home for David. What does he say? You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. And he's right, isn't he? David's hands are not innocent of blood. They're stained by the blood of Uriah, who he killed um, to cover up his sleeping with Bathsheba. David's failure in his own sins, his failure to administer justice in his kingdom and his family are still hanging over this whole situation. And so Shimi's kind of right in a way. But David's attitude then to Shimi's cursing, well, it's worth us reflecting on. David is humbled and he patiently endures cursings reasoning that God may be speaking words that he needs to hear, even through someone like Shimi. Now, in nations surrounding Israel, there was a great fear of curses. They were seen as a powerful means of actually manipulating circumstances and causing people great harm. But for believers in God, their conviction of God's sovereignty was so great that curses like that could simply be ignored for people who were the people of God who genuinely trusted him. And so, what does that mean here? Well, it means that if Shimi had really grasped a truth, and if this was God's judgment on David, well, it was God himself, not Shimi, not Shimi's curse that was to be feared. God himself. Now, David hadn't been directly responsible for killing Saul or his family, But the truth of the accusation that he was a man of blood and a scoundrel hits home. However, if Shimi's got it wrong, and this is not God's judgment, in fact, 
and that God will restore David, well, Shimei's curse is irrelevant, and David can ignore it. He doesn't need to take vengeance or stop Shimei cursing. And in fact, David suggests that maybe the distress that is being caused to him by people like Shimei, well, it might eventually be replaced by God's blessing. David wasn't sure whether it would end positively for him or not, but he was convinced that in either instance, God remained sovereign. We see David exercising his trust in God's sovereignty here. And so there's something for us to pick up on. We need to have the conviction that it's God alone who is sovereign. It's God who is to both be feared and trusted. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 4 to 5, it's not those who kill the body who are to be feared. Men, it's though the one who has authority to throw you into hell. That's God. He is the one who's in control. He is the one who's sovereign. And of course, people can do us great damage. Don't get me wrong. But we need to be far more afraid and concerned about offending God's will than of any ill will or vendetta that someone might have against us. And it also allows us, like David, to hand over ultimate justice to God and not have to take vengeance on those who do us harm. And that idea of vengeance leads us then to the third person that David interacts with. Abishai. Abishai, he's the son of Zeruiah, David's sister. He's the brother of Joab, who we've met a few times, the commander of David's army. And Abishai comes up to King David, ready for vengeance, ready to defend him. He looks fiercely loyal. Have a look at verse 9. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and to all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It might be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. And so David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. And the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. All right, last chance. What do you think of Abishai? Is he right to defend David? What do you think of David's response? Last one. Have a 30-second chat.
All right, that's your 30 seconds. Abishai. Well, to learn more about this, we need to kind of consider um, this instance in light of a couple of other instances. So verse 10 to 12 in our passage, they're actually similar to David's reply to Abishai's similar proposal back in 1 Samuel 26. Now, in that passage, David and Abishai have gone into Saul's camp at night and Saul is lying there asleep. David's enemy, the king, and Abishai offers to kill him for David. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now Abishai and his brother Joab, they're the sons of Zeruiah, They are all too keen to shed blood. See, Joab's family has previously been cursed and reprimanded by David for murdering Abner. We heard about that before. You'll see it on the screen. May his blood, that's Abner's blood, fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle at Gibeon. And we'll see also in chapter 19 when Shimi reappears, Abishai is going to again request permission to kill him. Abishai is a one-trick pony. He's more like the queen of hearts. Off with their heads! That's Abishai. It appears to be fierce loyalty from David's nephew but it's probably more of just a sadistic thirst for blood. Abishai just wants to chop off someone's head, and any excuse will do. And so while Abishai and his brother Joab, they're positioned on David's side, well, it turns out that managing these bloodthirsty men in itself is a challenging task for David. They're more like impulsive children than they are men who David constantly has to hold back. They're predictable, but they're dangerous. Now, last weekend, um, Annie and I went to a park near Concord with Ezra, near a friend's house. Uh, And this park, we looked it up on Google, it had some pretty epic play equipment. Uh, But we're a little bit uncertain. It had a part with sand and running water. And Ezra was in his nice clothes to go out for lunch and dinner. And we're like, oh. That's right, we'll just, we'll just go to the nice equipment. Uh, it's got soft fall rubber, it's pretty good. Well, Ezra's pretty predictable, isn't he? In this way, at least. Of course, when we got there, the first thing we go to the... Of course, Ezra goes straight for the sand and water. He can't help himself. No matter how good the other play equipment is, wet sand is inevitably where my son Ezra ends up. It kind of seems like the sons of Zeruiah have the maturity of a toddler, of a one and three quarter year old. But sadly, they have the capabilities of ruthless killers. And so David has to manage them like a child who's running straight for the wet sand and tell them off and hold them back. But in his own words, after they kill Abner, 2 Samuel 3.39, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. 
May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. They're too strong for David. They run off, they get out of his hand, and they kill. They're like sharks who are drawn to the smell even of potential blood. And so David, well, he has to strongly disassociate himself, not only from this particular action in our passage, but from the whole approach of the sons of Zeruiah. Abishai and Joab perhaps are being presented as enemies of David as almost as much as Shimei was. Their supposedly fierce loyalty to the Lord's anointed is actually just a cover, a ruse, an excuse for them to kill. But in contrast, David, as David flees, he demonstrates his trust in God. It is as if he cannot afford to fight because trusting God is the basis of his position. He entrusts himself to God's dealings with him. And so when Shimei hurls insults at him, David's reaction is to suggest that God sent Shimei with his insults. And it's God's business to recompense Shimei, not David's. And in his response to Abishai, David refers twice to Shimei acting on this kind of divine instruction. First time as a possibility, and then as a certainty. And so David's exchange with Abishai, well, finally, it presents David quite differently from the David that we've seen recently, doesn't it? It's much more like the David that we saw before he became king. A man who is willing to accept whatever comes from the hand of God. One who's willing to accept God's discipline for his wrongdoing. Someone who does not grasp hold of his own power, but is willing to endure curses and submit himself to God's hand. It's one much more like the Messiah of God. So you'll see on the screen there a few passages about Jesus. Oh, isn't it? Well, I'll read them out to you. Philippians 2, verse 5 and 6 says this. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He did not grasp hold of his authority. And then we see that Christ endured curses. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree or the cross. And Isaiah 53, writing hundreds of years before Jesus, but about him, says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Finally, after some terrible chapters, we again see hints of David in the likeness of our ultimate Messiah, Jesus. We see hints of one who did not grasp hold of his authority, who submitted to the will and purposes of God, who was cursed, oppressed, and afflicted, but did not use his power to destroy his enemies. One who reasoned that the Lord would look on his misery and restore him to his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. So we've seen recently that David failed in so many ways. So many ways. 
but we also see that he was still God's chosen king. And so he still points us forward to the ultimate and perfect king, God's son, Jesus. Now, by the end of our passage, David has arrived at a safe enough distance from Jerusalem, just at the right time, just when Absalom and his followers reach the city. God has been work at work orchestrating David's escape throughout this whole episode, providing all that he needs, even though it's sometimes been through people who have themselves pretty dodgy motives. God has been at work maintaining his covenant with David as his anointed king. God is still for David, and so too should Israel be. The accounts of those whose loyalty to David was free from self-interest, Ittai, Zadok, and um, Abiathar, Hushai, they're contrasted with Ahithophel's disloyalty, Shimei's enmity to, to David, and Zeba's ambiguous and confusing loyalty and disloyalty to Mephibosheth. We're being asked to reflect on the nature of people's responses to the Lord's anointed, the nature of loyalty and of trust. And as well, we see that betrayal of David isn't just a personal, selfish thing. It's not even just political. It's also a spiritual exercise in betraying God. For all of David's failings, he was still the God, still the, sorry, he was still the king that God had chosen for Israel. He pointed to the need for a perfect king in Jesus, but he also showed us glimpses of what our perfect king, to whom we have loyalty, would look like. For all his faults and his cluelessness about the way he relates to God, he is resolute in his commitment to God. And he points us forward to Christ's perfect loyalty to his Father, his suffering and endurances of curses, entrusting himself to God, reasoning that God would keep his promises and covenant and restore him, that God would administer justice in the end. And so we also can learn something of what it looks like to entrust God with all that we have, even in the midst of suffering and betrayal by others. We see a, a picture of loyal devotion to God and to his anointed even when the lot we're dealt is not so good. We can see in David a picture of humility about our own sin and that God sometimes may be disciplining us for our own good so that he might restore us. And so we can strive as well to be people of integrity in our relationships, not backhand dealing, not manipulating, not oppositional, but people who act with integrity and kindness and honesty, even when it's not reciprocated in the people that we meet. Because this is how God has dealt with us, isn't it? God has shown us kindness in salvation, even when we were his enemies. Though we abandoned him, though we crucified God's anointed king, he has not forsaken us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we see in this passage uh, different reactions to your anointed king. 
We see disloyalty and treachery. We see all-out opposition. And we even see what looks to be fierce loyalty, but is actually just self-seeking. Heavenly Father, help us to be different to this. Help us to trust in your anointed King Jesus, not for our own sakes, not in order to gain something for ourselves, but so that we might worship you and your Son in spirit and truth, knowing that you are good and have shown us kindness even when we were your enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.